Hey there, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we discuss big questions that come up as we read through the Bible because we're reading through the Bible this year. Uh, if you'd like to read through the Bible with us but you don't have our reading plan, check out BibleDiscoveryTV.com. You can uh, join along with us. But anyway, I digress. My name is Corey, if this is your first time here, and I'm joined by my husband. Hey. 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 Today we're reading Numbers 28 to Deuteronomy 14, and that's really exciting. So we're going to get into that. And we also have a bunch of new questions that we've lined up. Corey? We do. What are the kind of questions that we got? Okay, so our big question for today is do Christians have to follow the Mosaic law? So the law of God that we find written and recorded in the Old Testament of the Bible. But there are other questions that we're going to be discussing too. Questions that have to do with the, the misogyny or the so-called misogyny of the Mosaic law that we see there. So laws pertaining to women. We're going to be talking about the cities of refuge. We're going to be talking about Christian tithing uh, and even some Bible contradictions in there so that's all coming up on the show today awesome yeah okay, so i'll lead off then perfect okay so this one pertains actually to leviticus 12 but okay, it does yep. relate to numbers 30 numbers 36 perfect and this is from linda it's a viewer question she says what the israelites has to do a burnt offering crazy face crazy emoji face crazy emoji face was that a sin <laughs> to have a child and why was it uh, why was it longer to get pure from a female and not a male? A girl right. was two weeks, but a male was only a week. Yes. Crazy face. What's with that? Question mark. Question mark. Question mark. Okay. Very expressive. First of all, Linda, <laughs> I absolutely appreciate the emojis. Yeah. I mean. I'm a woman. I love using me some emojis when I'm texting, especially, te you know this about yes. me. I text you emojis all the time. <laughs> Sometimes with my mom, I just text emojis and then we end up having this full conversation all in emojis. So I, I mean, it's a thing. I appreciate it, Linda, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. I appreciate the expression. Okay, yes. So Linda's talking about Leviticus uh, 12 here, which I know is outside of the scope of our reading today, but I think it still pertains because I mean, when you look it, you, when you look through our reading in Numbers 30, we see um, rules about women and, and giving vows to God and, and Numbers 36, we, we see um, women being able to inherit property, but only in very specific circumstances. So this all has to do with how women were valued or not valued in ancient Israel. At least that's what we think when we come to the law because of our cultural context. Now, we obviously live in a culture in Canada and America in the West in general, where there is a general equality between uh, males and females. And, and I think this is a very good thing. So, so don't get me wrong here. Uh, but when it comes to the Bible, the, the biblical law, the Mosaic law in specific, I, there's a principle that we always need to use when we're approaching the law of Moses. And that is to remember that God wasn't creating a culture out of nothing here for Israel. He was working with the culture that Israel already was embedded within. They already had cultural assumptions. They already had value structures and everything like that. God did create a culture, a human culture from nothing back in Genesis, back in the Garden of Eden, uh, but humanity ever moved away from that. So uh, this is a huge you know, concept that we have to get our heads around when we're coming to the law. Mm. But nevertheless, Leviticus 12 is talking about purification after childbirth. So Linda, your first question was, was it a sin to have a child? Because in Leviticus 12, we see the woman 
uh, and the rules are given for the woman, but it would have included uh, her, her newborn child as well, um, having to give a burnt offering uh, and a sin offering. Sometimes it's called a sin offering, but it's also called a purification offering. Uh, um, there's a few other terms for it uh, at the at the temple for her ritual cleansing. So the first thing that I'm going to say is that this should not be seen as a sin offering. Uh, and and Christians, one of the re- ways that we know this is we look at Luke chapter two, and Luke records that Mary offered sacrifices for her purification, but it's a plural word there. So it's for their purification. So she offered a purification sacrifice for her, for uh, Jesus, and likely for Joseph as well. So uh, it was kind of a group thing. So that's important to, to know too, that this wasn't a sin offering, this was a purification offering. So the rules of purification, ritual purification, had to do with this concept of the people belonging to God and needing to deal with anything that made them human and therefore not like God. Because the Israelites were called to be separate, to be holy because God was holy. So it wasn't just childbirth or even menstruation that it wasn't just women's issues that required purification. There was a lot of men's issues, very normal biological functions when you go back and you read Leviticus uh, that men also needed to purify themselves from. But what made women's issues special, especially in the Jewish mind, is this idea of blood. Blood was a very precious thing in the ancient world. And we can, we can tell that because of how the Bible deals with it. So even like Israelites were not allowed to consume blood. They had to be very careful how they disposed of blood, even animal blood. And so whenever there's blood, because the principle was life is in the blood, this required something special. And so we see with menstruation, women had to be ritually impure for seven days and then go through a cleansing ritual. And we see the exact same thing happen here with uh, after childbirth. So because there's a bunch of blood that is shed during childbirth, this has to be dealt with. It has to be purified so that she can rejoin the holy, this this separated culture of ancient Israel. Tracking so far? Yes, yeah, yeah, Everything's making track. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've got that done, it wasn't a sin to have a child. It just because of the blood that was involved it may, and the bodily function that identified you as human and therefore less than God because we're, we're fallen now, this had to be dealt with. But now what's the deal with this? It looks on the face of it misogynistic. Uh, if she has a male child, she's only unclean for seven days. But if she has a female child, she's unclean for 14 days. Now, I am not claiming to have the ultimate answer on this because honestly, when you look into the the theological literature that's been written on this, pastors disagree, scholars disagree, theologians disagree. But I'm going to give you a couple of um, a couple of ways that I think makes a lot of sense of this. So, uh, a male a male child was circumcised on the eighth day. So he and his mother had to be ritually purified enough to be able to go through this process of circumcision on the eighth day enough that the 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 person who was doing the circumcision would not also become ritually unclean. Now, it is a really interesting concept, this idea that the 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 self-sacrificial act of, of male circumcision may have 
been seen to have some sort of atoning quality. Uh, and the reason why I would say that is because we go back to Exodus chapter four, and in this thing with Zipporah and Moses, when God is seeking to kill Moses, Zipporah circumcises their son and touches the blood of the circumcision on Moses, and that somehow cleanses his guilt, and God relents from trying to uh, kill Moses uh, or put to death Moses, execute him. So there may be some sort of ancient concept when it comes to the blood of circumcision having some sort of atonement. So coming under the covenant of Abraham has some sort of atoning thing, which would explain why everything is shortened for a male. Uh, it's also interesting to, to think about the concept of a female child, then also being cleansed from her blood. So it's not just that the mother's having to be cleansed from her blood, but also the female child being cleansed from her blood. Uh, it's a pretty common phenomena that, that a female child often will also bleed a little bit after birth because of the mother's hormones. We know that it's because of the mother's hormones now. It happens apparently in about 10% of cases, 10% uh, of all female births, which is really interesting. So there's that as well. So I hope that that gives a, a couple of steps. Yeah, that's good. It's theological and very practical. Yeah. Theological yeah. and practical. And obviously after that initial seven day period or 14 day period, the Bible lets us know that it's a it's a downgraded ritually impure status because the mother is still bleeding. I mean, you bleed for a really long time after you give birth. Um, there, uh, she's just not able to go into the sanctuary or touch the holy things. Right. Uh, so if this was like a priest's wife, a Levite's wife, who's, right. who's dealing with the holy sacrifices and that's the food that they're eating, she would just refrain from right. that. And it's definitely not sin. It's definitely to retain a holy culture. Yes. That's exactly yes. right. And I also think it's really interesting. Like we look at this and we're like, oh, how archaic, how brutal. But actually, when you look at the surrounding cultures of Israel, these laws for the purification after childbirth and... Um, and to do with menstruation are actually quite egalitarian in the fact that the woman the woman still maintains her place in society. She doesn't have to leave the home. She stays in the home and, and, and these such things. Where in other cultures, we know that women were actually had forced to leave the home yes. for the time of their menstruation. So it's just really interesting that that's not... God is legislating the culture in such a way as to maintain the integrity and the the idea that the woman is also in the image of God. Now. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's great. That's a great answer. Okay. Let's keep going. Awesome. I got another yeah. one for you. Sure. All right. So this is a Bible question. It's okay. a question that just comes up naturally in the text. So how did the cities of refuge work exactly? Right. And should we have cities of refuge today? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So cities of refuge were really interesting. And, and actually, it, it goes really well with Linda's question because it has to do with blood. Right. So I talked a little bit at, at the beginning of uh, a beginning of uh, Linda's question, discussing how uh, Israelites had treated blood special to remember that God was the originator of life. So the idea was life is contained within the blood and therefore we must treat it special. Atonement must be made for spilled blood. Um, and in some cases, interestingly, by spilling more blood. And this goes back to Genesis. I mean, when you look at Genesis 4, uh, Genesis, uh, 4 and 5 with Cain and Abel, and God comes to Cain and he says, your brother's blood screams to me from the ground. So 
there's some really interesting ideas about spilt blood. So City of Refuge, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 35. You can read it about it in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 19. Uh, basically what it was, it was for a place of accidental murder. So someone who had not pre-planned this, they weren't angry when they killed someone. The example that's given in the Bible is that, you know, they go out to chop down a tree, two people go out to chop down a tree and an ax head flies off the ax and hits the other person in the head and, and the person ends up dying. Right. So it's, it's an accident, right? Um, uh, that person could go and live in a city of refuge. They couldn't leave the city of refuge, but they could live there and, and have a full life without worrying about what was called the avenger of blood. So in this ancient society, there weren't any prisons. Uh, there was capital punishment, but that capital punishment was enacted, capital punishment for murder in this case, and that cap that the, the murderer would be executed by a close relative of the person who was murdered. Right. And they were called the avenger of blood. And it was to deal with the unjust spilling of human blood. Human blood could be spilt, but it had to be just. It had to be um, as recompense for evil. So right. that's essentially how it worked. And if you were really lucky, while you were living in a city of refuge, the high priest would die uh, because his death would release you from your crime and you would be able to rejoin society. Right. And that, yeah. Which is really interesting because we don't think about that today. And that's yes. right that you're bound, your sins are bound to the to the priest himself. Um, but also, too, should we have cities of refuge today? That's also the second part of this question. Right, the so, second part so, of this question. So in, in one sense, I kind of feel like, well, first of all, we don't have prisons. So we're not, you're not worried about an adventure of death. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So you're not, just, usually it's like, okay, I accidentally hurt so somebody. So we do have prisons. They didn't have prisons. That's yes. right. Yes. That's right. Uh, but we do have it kind of in reverse, I guess is what I'm saying. You have witness protection. Um, which is not quite the same. Not quite but, the same. But you have something where it's like someone's being protected from someone who intends to uh, basically get revenge on them for calling them mm -hmm, out. Mm -hmm. It's not obviously identical, but that in my head, and I know we have sanctuary cities, but that's also not, it's also less pertinent. But that in my head is probably the closest thing I could think about if you were to have them today. Um, but in a large part, I don't think you really, I don't think they translate over very well. They definitely um, don't translate over to our society very right. well at, at all. Because so ancient Israelite society before there were kings, it was it was a tribal society. I mean, even after it, there were kings in Israel, it still maintained some tribal elements. Uh, but it was a patriarchal society as well. So the responsibility for maintaining law and order and taking care of the lesser advantaged of society was not given to the government. It was placed on the oldest male member of individual homes and houses. So, uh, like we would, today we would call someone going out to take vengeance for a murder. We would call that vigilante justice. And yes. we would just, we can't do that. It's shocking, right? <laughs> right? There's an order that we have to do these in. Well, that's because our society is completely structured differently where we, uh, elect government officials and we have endowed them with power and with our money, with our tax dollars in order to theoretically uh, create laws that are helpful and uphold those laws that are helpful and uh, make sure that there's a police force to enact these laws. So it's just a completely different system. So yeah. no, I don't think it would work well. Yeah.
at, in our society as it is today. Yeah, you have to have a completely different society, I think. Completely to make it... different. A completely right. different can of worms. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I definitely think so. Okay, I think I am going to ask you the next question, sure. if you don't mind. No, I don't mind. Okay, so we have a Bible question related to Deuteronomy 4 versus, sorry, Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 to 9. I okay. always do that. But because I'm talking about the Shema, and I always <laughs> say Deuteronomy four, and it's not; it's six, four do to that. nine. Don't do that to me, because then I'm going to copy. I'm sorry; it's I okay. may have just messed yeah. up your brain. That's okay. On that, right. I hope I didn't do that to you. The Shema, the Jewish Shema, is found in Deuteronomy six, verses four to nine, and the question is this: Why is the Shema so important? So maybe first we right. should. Yeah, I got to read hear. what it is. I can read it. Do you have it? Okay. Okay. Let's do it. So Deuteronomy 6, yes. verses 4 to 9. Yes. Hear, O Israel, <laughs> the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You mm -hmm. shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, so right off the cuff, this was seen as, this is vitally important to the, not only the Hebrew culture, but to just Christianity as a whole as well. Yep. Because Christ actually use, references the Shema as the greatest commandment. This, and he also references Leviticus 19 verses 18. Um, but before I get into you know, Christ talking about let's kind of break these things down. First of sure. all, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a huge establishing thing that the Lord... Huge. It's against polytheism, for one thing. It, it's it's speaking to the nature of God, That's right? exactly right. Yeah. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? So it's establishing this thing, and there's all these polytheistic cultures, all these other gods, quote-unquote. So this is establishing, no, there's one God mm -hmm. immediately right there. And in the Hebrew, you don't have certain things, like you don't have like... Uh, certain uh, prepositions so you don't have like ah and that it's just like the lord god lord one see mm -hmm. what i'm saying so it's like it's very cut and dry clean cut anyway so let's keep reading uh, here's what christ himself quotes you should love the lord your god with all your heart all your soul and all your might now that word might there is really important mm -hmm. because it actually translates a miod which is essentially um not just your your internal might like strength there's other words for that but it's actually like all that you have that includes your strength to some extent, but to a lesser extent, more so your resources, like all of your resources, which includes your external resources. So like your wealth. And actually, I think the Aramaic mm. translations translate that wealth, all of your wealth, all of your, you know, your sheep, uh, all of your stuff that you have. So here, what you have here is quite a remarkable statement. Um, you have heart, you have soul, and you have uh, all of your resources, all of your wealth and stuff like that. So heart and soul is basically your your inner man, your right. inner being, right? So all of that you are on the inside belongs to God. Um, and your life, that word soul there also, as I talked about earlier, translates to life. So your life, your life, and also your heart really connotes what your moral culpability, your moral uh, responsibility in terms of what you can do. So, of the, so all that you can, all that you are, and all that you have, mm. that is the parallel. So basically, like, you know, what does that not include, right? Yeah. It includes everything. Even, everything. even things so surrounding you, that, that, that's what it includes. So right there you have something that, which is so powerful because that is a glue to all of the law. The reason why 
It's so important. It's because that glues all the other laws together. That's the reason why when the Pharisees came to Christ, said, Christ, what's the most important law? And I'll read it to you, right? And they're trying to get him because this question came out because there's 613 laws in total. And they're trying to like, so what's the most important law? Mm-hmm. And then Christ says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And then in Matthew 22, verses 40, yeah. he adds something else. On these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. Yeah. So in other words, everything depends on the Shema here, right? Also mm-hmm. Leviticus 19, verse 18. So long story short, your love for God, right? Not just compliance, compliance of the law, but your love for God is what's going to compel you to actually comply to the law. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important. It's not just, it's, you think of the rich young ruler. Uh, he was doing all the laws. And God's like, well, you sell all your money. How much do you love God? Mm-hmm. He's like, no, no, I can't do that. The principle there, right? And with that rich young ruler specifically, when Christ says, hey, sell all you have, and, you know, give it to God and follow me. Think about what we just learned there. The Shema is love the Lord of God with all your strength. Yeah. Right? All that you have. So that's what the rich young ruler is guilty of, not actually um, loving God with all of his strength. But he's mm-hmm. following the, the law. He's complying to the law. Mm-hmm. But there's, a, there's an inwardness, mm-hmm. a complete inwardness that comes to that, the circumcision of your heart. So right there, you have something that's gluing all the laws together. And then here, what's amazing here, when it says hear, O Israel, that word hearing implies doing. Yes. Right? So you have here, and then it goes here. It goes, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit on your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. So at dawn and at dusk, right? When you're walking, when you're in your house, everywhere you go, this is on, there should be this frontlets between your eyes, right? It should be on your hands. And we know later on in Revelation, it talks about the mark of the beast, mm-hmm. the relationship between frontlets between your eyes, and then she'll be, uh, what does it say here? Um, bind them to your hands. Bind them to yep. your hands. You have that same principle here that's applied in the Shema, where it's like everything that you do, and everything that you think about, right? Mm-hmm. Needs to be filtered through the love of God. Needs to be filtered through the love of God. Yeah. And when, you know, the, not, I'm not getting into Revelation, but the mark of the beast is the opposite of that, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. So here, here, that you have, and even the things that you have, which is might, strength, right? You should have, write them on your doorposts, on your house, mm-hmm. on your gates. That's all that you have. So everything and that you And even your, children. Yeah, and even children. your children. Yeah. Exactly. So all that you have, all that you are, and all that you can. Mm-hmm is love for God. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, <laughs> I think right there you have the basis of all Christian morality. Yeah. Functions through that. Yeah. And regardless of, you know, complying to the law, as you see later on, people are doing the law outwardly in appearance, but it does, their hearts, right? Are just Yeah, impure. later on in the prophets, right? Because the prophets are, the people are saying, you know, we're doing all the sacrifices. That's we're doing right. all the sacrifices. And, and in Isaiah, you know, we're fasting and through the prophet Isaiah, God says, I don't want your fasts. Like how you're not, you're not following any of the principles of the law. That's right. Is this not, here's the kind of fast that I have called. And then, and then he goes through, right. you know, uh, bringing relief to the oppressed and the foreigner and the widow. And, and so there, there has to be a, a, an internal connect between following the law for, for ancient Israel. The ancient Israelite was expected to not just follow the law because that's what God said to do, but follow the law because they desire to prioritize God. They decide to actively love 
God. Right. So, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think it speaks to the nature of God. I think the Shema speaks to the nature of the relationship between Israel and God, between man and God, because because Christ brings that over into the New Testament covenant, which is really interesting. Um, It talks about passing on this love of God and this understanding of who God is, his nature and our relationship to him, to the next generation and literally making it something that we think about all the time, something that we talk about all the time. And in everything that we put our hands to do, we are thinking about that and we are considering right. it. We are applying love for God actively in our lives. That's right. And yeah. later on in the New Testament, they call that the law of Christ. Yes. So what's interesting, when we think of law in our modern sensibilities, we just think of codification. Right. A bunch right. of laws do listed this, down. So this won't happen to That's you. right. Yeah. Here's yeah. what you got to do, right? To do the list. But that's not the case at all here. The law here is contrasted with lawlessness, which is essentially morality, goodness in and of itself. Right. Uh, and that's what we're dealing with when we're in terms of law. Okay. So I think that is the basis for we Why is it so important? Because it glues everything together. Everything together. Everything together. Yes. So Agreed. I have a next question. It's a viewer question for you. Perfect. Let's move on. Okay. Let's do it. So James A., Please, I'm seeking answers. Exodus 32, verse 14, the Lord changed his mind from the evil. After Moses prayed and bade God not to harm the the children of Israel Mm -hmm. for their ignorance. Yet in 32, verse 27, just a few short verses down, uh, Moses tells the Levites to slay those guys, 3,000 and all, saith the Lord. Did I miss something? I didn't read where God ordered the, I didn't read where God ordered that I read just the opposite. Please explain. That's the first part of his question. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yes, Lloyd. So, um, I mean, James. James. Hmm, I'm <laughs> jumping ahead because there's there's someone else named Lloyd who asked a question that's related to the big question. But James, thank you for this question. So, um, the incident of the golden calf, which is what you're talking about, is recorded in Exodus 32. It's also recorded in our reading um, this week, which was Deuteronomy 9. So, we get a second look at it. Um Yes. So what has happened here is that um, God tells Moses that he wants to destroy all of Israel, that he wants to abandon abandon Israel as the people of the covenant because they have broken the covenant of Abraham. They've broken the covenant that God is striking with them as well. So he wants to disinherit the people of Israel and fulfill the covenant of Abraham through Moses's descendants, because Moses was a descendant of Abraham. So he's essentially going, okay, God's like, what I can do here is just dismiss these children of Israel and take you, Moses, as basically as a new patriarch of a new nation of Israel. And and so um, if from our reading this week in Deuteronomy 9, verse 13, uh, this is what it says. And the Lord said to me, which is Moses, I have seen this people and they are a stiff necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. And then Moses intercedes for Israel and he's like, God, if you do this, if you, the, the, the people of Egypt will think that you just brought these people out here to kill them. Like, you are not going to be seen as as a good God. This is not, please don't do this. And so 
God accepts this intervention by Moses, uh, apparently quite willingly and quite happily. But then we learn a little bit later on, it's not that he's going to let Israel off scot-free. What's going to happen is those who incited the rebellion, they are going to be held accountable. So we've got the the execution of the 3,000 Israelites that, right. that began that riot. So and, that's how we should understand that contradiction. It's not actually a contradiction at all. It's that God wanted to get rid of all of Israel. Moses interceded and God's like, okay, only those who incited the rebellion are going to pay for this crime. Okay, so that solves the logical issue. But there is still this moral question that he has that's attached to this. So here's the follow-up question. How can we be commanded not to kill through the commandments in order to kill from God? Please, 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 mm. please help me understand. Um, so, so that's kind of the heart of where he's coming from. He's more so even thinking along the lines of, well, God says don't kill. Yeah. But then, so I will add one thing. And I'll let you continue. Sure. Is that capital punishment is different from murder. Yeah. And the word there is not kill. It's don't murder. But continue. I'll let you yeah, do no, this that's more. A, that's exactly where I was going. Okay, good. Okay, Definitely. Sweet. I was going to go to uh, the Ten Commandments, which is what I'm assuming where you're coming from, yes. James. So, you know, in Deuteronomy 5, it's a retelling of the Ten Commandments. And, and verse 17 says, you shall not murder. Uh, murder is the shedding of innocent blood. Capital punishment is the shedding of guilty blood. Uh, and so there's a there's a massive difference be between that. One is an affront to God. Murder is an affront to God. It's an assault on life. The other one is a punishment for a crime. It's it's justice. Uh, it's a brutal form of justice, but it's but it's a type of judgment. So God doling out this judgment was an appropriate thing to happen. Brutal, yes but appropriate. And when we think of it in terms of ancient Israel, if ancient Israel in this circumstance was going to continue on in their idolatry, God would have had no choice but to abandon Israel wholesale. Like if they can't even make it through the years of the wilderness wandering in order to go and, and go into the conquest of Canaan with a godly leader, this wasn't going to work out. Right, God was going to have to start again. So by putting to death the inciters of the rebellion, it's, it's bringing judgment to them. It's, it's letting everyone know how serious this crime is, but it's also getting rid of massive evil and the potential for massive death in the future. So it's not pretty, it's not nice, but it's also not murder. So the Levites that went through and executed these people we should see it as executing criminals, not murder. So that would have been their believed justification. So I think that's right. where we have to take and the text. Yeah, I know we're not talking about whether or not capital punishment, should we have capital punishment today? I know we're not addressing that, but the principle behind it is because they don't have prison systems, they're completely structured differently than we are. Um, this is a preventative measure against people. Hey, listen, if you do this, you're gonna die. It just completely prevents people from breaking the law. Yeah, but and I think even like beyond not completely, but for the most but, part. Yes, I'm agreeing yeah. with you. And beyond that, idolatry is a sin that leads to death. Yes. No. Yeah. And so worse the death. Israelites, they, the the Israelites believing that they could just worship idols and it's going to be fine. God saying, no, if you worship idols, 
Like this life here on earth is not the only life that we have to live. There's going to be a resurrection from the dead. There's going to be a final judgment and not everyone is going to live in the new heavens and the new earth with God. And idolaters, it's very clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're not going to be living in the new heavens and the new earth. They will be judged for their crime. And and to make that even, make make the contrast more stark than today, you think about religions where no one's sacrificing children. Back then, other religions were just sacrificing children for power and fortune. Yes. So what you have here is that when you are committing to idolatry, Mm -hmm. it's not just like, oh, hey, we're doing this to kind of stay alive kind of thing. And like, no, you're actually corrupting not only your own heart, but you're corrupting the hearts of your children and so on and the spread of evil. So God's greater plan has always been to destroy evil. That's what's happening. Yeah. But he can't do that if we're all committing ourselves to evil, essentially. Yeah. So when you might be like, oh, idolatry, you know, is no big deal. And it's, well, actually it's inner death. You're killing yourself, whether you recognize it or not. And then you're killing people around you, whether you recognize it or not, Mm -hmm. spiritually killing them. So that's the issue is that there's spiritual uh, repercussions for idolatry and other things. But I know that this pertains to bigger things than just idolatry, but at this, like the Sabbath and stuff like that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that's the heart of it. It's like breaking the law and, and capital punishment was a preventative measure so that people wouldn't do it. And it preserves that holy culture, which we find out later on that preservation of the Israeli culture was to bring about Christ. Yes. We find that in Galatians. Okay. Okay. I think that's What's good. This? I think yeah, that's I good. Think so. I, yeah. I, I really hope that helps. We're going to be talking more about this issue of you know, God commanding killing when we get into Joshua and Judges and the conquest of Israel, that's quite brutal. So um, hopefully you join us on on more shows if this question is really still brewing in you. But I hope this right. helps for now. Also, okay, to carry on. Carry we on. We have our final few questions, which are all very much related to our big question. Oh, sure. You okay. don't, we, we did miss one from Deuteronomy 4. Do we want to skip over it? We can do it. Which one's that? Oh, that's right. From the Bernice. Du- yes. Bernice I missed has a it question. completely. Okay. I've got you, Bernice. I'm sticking I'll it read for it. you. I'll read it for you. <laughs> so I missed it completely. Yeah, Bernice. Is- okay, great. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. All right. So here we go. So uh, from Bernice, what does the Bible say about Christian tithing? Yes. Because in Deuteronomy 14, the Israelites are commanded to tithe. Um, and so, you know, in the Old Testament, so I'm just like funking my Bible. Funk. Probably heard it. It's good. It's a nice big study Bible. It makes a good thunk. I like a good sound effect right. when I'm reading, when I'm studying. Just <laughs> my day-to-day life. Anyway, Bernice. Yes. So the the Israelites were commanded to give tithes. So that I give a percentage of their um, their goods, their crops, their the monetary value of their crops if they couldn't, you know, travel all the way to Jerusalem with with their crops and stuff like that. On a monetary value. Um, and it's at 10%. But then there's other tithes that they were also required to give to the Levites, uh, the the temple tax, and and all of these different things. So, I think I believe that I've heard scholars put it closer at like 23% of total income of the of an ancient Israelite would have gone uh, to the temple, which is really interesting. So then the question becomes, well, are we obligated as Christians to tithe? And I believe personally that the answer is no. We are not obligated or required to tithe. This obviously is going to tie into the answer to our big question, are Christians required to follow the law of Moses? But I do not believe that Christians are required to tithe. However, there are examples in the New Testament of Christian believers providing for other Christians who have fallen upon hard times, but also sharing with 
sharing with Christians in general and providing for teachers so that the teachers don't have to work a regular job. They can focus on spreading the gospel and building up the kingdom of God. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, we see this is the classic example where Paul's, Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm coming to you and before I get there on the first day of every week, according to how much you make, I want you guys to set aside a little bit of what you make, whatever you can. And then when I get there, we will pray and we will send out messengers to uh, the church in Jerusalem with this gift because the Jerusalem church had fallen on hard times. There was a famine. So this church was going to be providing for it. We also read in Acts 18, uh, where Paul, uh, he travels to a city with uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and it says that he spends his weeks making tents. And then on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogues and he preaches Christ to the Jews. But when Timothy uh, and I think it's Silas uh, show up, uh, then they, they show up from Macedonia and Paul stops tent making and he dedicates all his time to teaching and preaching. So the idea is that one of two things has happened. The Macedonian church where Timothy has just come from has sent a financial gift to support Paul, food and um, board, uh, and or Timothy and his travel companion are now working to support Paul to do the same thing. So we have examples of that. And of course, the classic example of the early church in Acts where it talks about them having all things in common and people selling even property to help other members of the Christian church uh, to live and survive. So there's a principle of being generous and um, helping to support the work of God when and where we can. And want to, to add to that, because I know when we think about the word obligation, we're not obligated to tithe. Uh, we're talking about legally obligated because mm -hmm. when we think about, once again, the greatest commandment and that word strength means all that you have, all your resources. Clearly that includes yeah. money. Clearly that includes those things. So the, the principle is that all those things belong to God already. Yeah. Once you're grafted into the Christian world, the Christian life in Christ, right? That means that all the stuff that you belong belongs to Christ, mm -hmm. right? Because you're heirs, you're adopted into the sonship and all that thing. So they belong to God. That's the principle. So the idea of this behind what we're talking about obligation is strictly a legal obligation of let's say 10%. Yeah. In Acts, you see people that they, you know, they give everything that they have to, uh, to, to forward the mission. And then you see Paul comes along and he's collecting finances to move along because everyone's forwarding the mission. Yeah. So the point here is that your, your tithing comes into your heart to give. There's two examples that we have. One of the old, one of the new. In Mark 12, uh, we have the, the widow that gives all the last of her money. And Christ goes, look, like, look, all these people are giving money, but she's giving all that she has. Proportionately, the money that the widow gives, even though it's so little compared to everyone else, is way more for her than what everyone else is giving. And Christ sees that as extremely valuable. Yeah. And then uh, later, and also into with Elisha, uh, one of the widows is giving all that her last meal, essentially, to Elisha. You have these principles where giving, uh, there's, God blesses those who give. You know, even, even if you're giving in secret, right? That's the, that's the idea. So the idea is not to look at it in a rigid legal way. Yeah. Um, your obligation is to God and forming the mission of God. That's the principle. But to look at it like, oh, I, I owe 10% this month. To look at it very much like a checklist takes away the heart and the purpose behind the gospel. I think that's kind of what we're getting at. Um, 
Yeah, so the long story short is, yeah, so when it comes to Christian tithing, it's really about giving all that you have to God. Yeah. Who you are, your life, and the things that you have, they belong to God. Uh, so it's more than just a, a rigid 10% like a tax, let's yeah. say. Yeah, it's definitely not a tax. It's it's a heart thing. So it's, right. it's where, where you can and where you're able. You support missions of God because that's who you are, you know, right. you, you love God and you love him with everything that you have, you know, hearkening back to the, to the principle of the Shema, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, if you, if you see someone who needs help and you can help them, you help them, you know, uh, it, it's a really great thing. And it's, it's just and, part of loving and God. To, okay. So to add to that's really important. So helping orphans and widows yeah. is quote unquote tithing. "Quote unquote," because it's not quite—it's not the same thing. The word tithing—it's offering. It's, it's, giving it's an, an offering. It's, that's exactly right. Sure. So it's a form of it. So sure. You're giving yourself. You're giving your resources to these people. Mm -hmm. so what I'm saying is, like the the concept of Christian tithing is not the rigid legal compliance of oh, here's ten percent. It's not a tax. Yeah. It's very different. So giving your resources up for the Christian uh, for the Christian message, the gospel, uh, to helping, loving your neighbor as yourself, all those things. So forwarding the purposes and plans of God, and that's what t the purpose of it is. That's what giving is. Mm -hmm. So. Anyways, that's that's my 10 cents on top of that. That's that. Perfect. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. All right. So I have, this is once again to go back before, because this is, I missed Bernice's question. <laughs> so to track back. <clears throat> Super disorganized today, apparently. That's okay. It happens. <laughs> so let's talk about this. These questions all wrap into our big question. Yes. We asked the big question because we got so many questions like it. So the big question is, do Christians have to follow the law? Then here are the questions that inspire that. Okay, right. So this one's from Christopher Q. After Deuteronomy, the Torah reading first five books will be complete. Mm -hmm. Jewish tradition maintains there are 613 commands. Many Christians say that only commands that are moral and or affirmed in the New Testament apply to the modern believer. This includes the Ten Commandments. What is your belief? Okay. Then okay. we have, here's another one from Ruby. Should we still follow the laws of the Old Testament? Many Jews follow these, but uh, did the New Testament completely negate the law of Moses? If so, which section should we keep? So these are two slightly different. One is about belief. One is about, you know, is the New Testament completely negating it? Okay, that's the, that's what I have. And then you said, so you said you had one from Lloyd? Yes, Lloyd. Okay, so he says this. Hi, Corey. My question is... Um, Many of the Hebrew roots movements say we must obey Torah along with faith, faith in Christ. But didn't Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Beatitudes not replace Torah, but deepen our responsibility to walk in the Spirit after we trust in Jesus as our Savior? Yes. Okay. Yeah. These are all. These are all. These are all. all these are right. all questions that are that are different, nuanced versions of do Christians have to follow the law? Right. Okay. So starting with Christopher Q, who basically says, "What's your belief?" Many Christians say that only commands that are moral and or affirmed in the New Testament apply to the modern believer. Yeah. This includes the Ten Commandments. What is your belief? Okay. So I've been thinking about how to express my personal position on this, Christopher, because I know that it's really important for some people to know where we stand individually. So I believe the Ten Commandments to be a derivative of God's ultimate morality, but they don't, they aren't his complete morality 
in and of itself. Um, so they are, they are a pinnacle of God's morality as expressed to Israel specifically in the Mosaic law. So I think that God's law is greater and deeper than the Ten Commandments, but it is represented definitely in the Ten Commandments. Uh, so I don't believe that Christians have to obey the Ten Commandments because they're the Ten Commandments, but I do believe there is significant moral overlap between the law of Christ and the Ten Commandments. I hope that's not as clear no, and so as well, to add to I that, hope so, that's clear as crystal. Okay, yeah, so I know because it gets kind of convoluted <laughs> for some people. Me. Okay, so specifically, let's, let's go back to the Shema or the greatest commandment that Christ said, okay? Mm -hmm. So he doesn't, none of the, what he highlighted as the greatest commandment is in the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Now, it's implied, so for example, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Mm -hmm. and, and here is where the Lord is one, right? That implies you should have no other gods before me. Mm -hmm. That implies that, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have that. It, it, so God's uh, Christ's greatest commandment is Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 to 9, and then also, or 4 to 9, I should say, and also Leviticus 19, verses 18. Mm -hmm. Exodus 20 is not involved mm -hmm. because God's, as you were saying, God's morality there's deeper forms of morality than just the Ten Commandments. And to Absolutely. add to this, okay, so to understand this a little bit more, thou shall not bear uh, false witness. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you think about that, technically that doesn't include delusion or self-deception. It means don't lie to your neighbor. That's a great societal law. That is a moral law that you should follow. Mm -hmm. However, self-deception is what stirs up lying to your neighbor, even unintentionally. Self-deception is wrong, mm -hmm. and that happens. So, but the, that's not included in the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So, what Christ does is he deepens it, as that gentleman Lloyd was saying. Yep. He, he deepens it, right? He brings it down to the root causes, right? So, instead exactly. of instead of adultery, he talks about lust. Right. So, adultery begins in your heart, and lust is the beginning. That's it right. is sin in and of itself. That's right. So, the, here's what we have: is the heart and the purposes of the law that aren't ceremonial are maintained throughout the New Testament, basically. So, for example, take um, the sacrificial laws. That was summed up in Christ. Yeah. Uh, right. So, so when, when we have people say <coughs> you have ceremonial law, right, those, like, you know, anything to sure, do with sacrificing, yeah. that those laws are no longer applicable because that's included in the 613 laws. Those laws are no, longer, are no longer applicable because Christ fulfilled that requirement, for instance. Yeah. But the purposes of, say, don't murder, that still carries on. Do you see what I'm saying? Because the purposes of that yeah. are more fundamental than something that was just a shadow of things to come. Okay, so I think that upon like kind of talking to a lot of people about this and watching different videos on this and reading different people writing on this, I really do think that different personalities of human beings understand this differently. Right. Like, like they like to express it in different ways. Yeah. But for me, what makes the absolute most sense is to divide salvation history into its sections. So the the covenant that God made with Israel is not applicable to the covenant that Jesus Christ made with right, the church. Right. The Sinai covenant. So the covenant that Moses made with the Israelites that was that was identified in the law of Moses, in the law of God, the expression of that covenant, the rules for that covenant, all of those those were given to Israel. That is what they had to fulfill. Okay, they had to do it. Jesus Christ 
fulfilled that law. He came and he did that law. He was the final sacrifice. He fulfilled it. So in that sense, the old covenant has passed and the new covenant has come. That's the whole you can't put old wine in new, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. There's a new wineskin, there's a new covenant. Now, that's also the works of the law and good works. That's the, that's exactly, the divide there in the exactly. New Testament. So now we as Christians are under a new covenant. God has cut a new covenant with us that was prophesied back under the old covenant. When you look at Jeremiah, you look at Isaiah, you look even at Deuteronomy 30 when Moses is saying, you know, one day God's going to come and he's going to circumcise your hearts. There's going to be a prophet like me who comes and circumcises your hearts, okay? All looking forward to this new covenant. So the, the, the old law has not been abolished. It has been fulfilled in Christ. And Christians are not a part of that covenant, though we learn a lot from looking at that covenant. Now, because it was a covenant made by God, absolutely there's a lot of God's morality that's reflected in that covenant. And therefore, there will be a lot of God's morality that is extremely similar well, right. and reflected in the new covenant, which is the law of Christ. So the law of Christ is summarized in the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And those ideas are parsed out in the rest of the New Testament. Right. So let me read what you're saying here. because Perfect. Th th people, when we try to bridge the old to the new, I'm going to read Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 14. Perfect. Which is basically Jeremiah, verses, uh, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, okay? There's a little snippet at the end. So let me read that to you. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the Mosaic covenant. Mm -hmm. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The spirit versus the law, that's what Paul gets at. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Then Hebrews adds, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Mm. Very long story short, okay, is that the old covenant, we're not bound to the old covenant at all. So then that's what Paul talks about, the works of the law versus mm -hmm. good works. We're, we're saved by grace through faith so that we can do good works, mm -hmm. not that we have to do the works, not that we're saved by works of the law itself, right? And what are those works of the law? Well, some people call those ceremonial ceremonial laws, right? Sure. The sacrificial laws, right? Stuff like that. We're not saved by doing, complying to those laws anymore. Um, so that's really important. And then even to the extent of which, um, you know, what would those include? Because people, people always say, well, the Ten Commandments. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago about the Sabbath. Um, it says here, you know, Hosea 2 verses 11. I don't, I don't know if you have it on. I don't have it. Hosea 2 verses 11. He specifically says the day is coming when I will vanish or basically get rid of the new moons and Sabbath. They will mm -hmm. be no more. You can read that up for yourself. Maybe our editor will put that down below on the screen for you. 
and because the, the Sabbath is a work of the law. It was, a, it was part of the Mosaic Covenant. And what gets people, I think, confused about that is because, well, think about it in Old, Old Testament you know, concerns. Mm-hmm. Everything in this sense, in the, all 613 laws, would be moral. Because they're good laws from God that you have to apply and they're behavioral, right? So in a sense, you would see them. The reason why it gets the ceremonial, civil, cultural, moral breakdown gets confusing because to the Jews at the time, that's all moral to them. And 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 because to them, like we are so separated from their culture. Right. All of these laws, you know, we look at Leviticus 18, we look at Leviticus 20, God talks about how he is distinguishing Israel of that time right. from the cultures of that time. Right. So these would have all made sense to Israel. They would know where they're coming from. Right. But today we're so far removed from that by thousands of years and thousands of miles, it doesn't make sense to us anymore because the context is not immediately clear. That's right. But yes, I see what you're saying. Like to them, these all made sense and because, these all expressed God's morality. They had a reason behind them, well, yes. which has, for, for some of these laws, the reasoning has been lost. Well, that's right. So what you have here is that to the Jews at the time, you know, following the, the rituals, in a sense, is a moral thing to do because it's what God told you to do. It's right. the right thing to do. Right. However, if you're just following the ritual because it has nothing to do with God, I mean, oh, I'm just doing it just to kind of do it so I can get some sort of forgiveness and there's no heart in there, mm-hmm. then it's no longer moral. The morality has gone. So our, in a sense, applying the law itself to do it outwardly isn't moral. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem that people have. Just people like, oh, well, I'm going to not murder people. I'm a moral guy. No, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. You might want to. You might hate your brother. So mm-hmm. it's like you know, that doesn't make you moral just because you 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 comply to the societal standards, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's I think just looking at it like old and new. That's important. And what is a work of the law versus what is a a good work? And that's the t- like there is no what's again. Here's what's cultural. Here's what's civil. Because civil laws are blends of moral laws, right? Mm-hmm. They're just usually more simple expressions of something that's moral. It really comes to, comes down to what's a work of the law and what's a good work. And you know things like in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath was considered a work of the law. Well, and, yeah, and, and and the Sabbath for the Israelites, it was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. That's exactly so right. As circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, when you study the Sabbath, it was given as a sign to the other nations that Israel was now under the Mosaic covenant. Right. And there's a couple of things I want to add here that, that in the New Testament that kind of help with this discussion. Okay, so um, in terms of doing good works and what are we called to do, right? Mm-hmm. In, terms of the, in terms of the law. Paul says in Romans 13, 8 to 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, mm-hmm. you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, okay, and any other commandment, referring to the Ten Commandments, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law, right, the greatest commandment. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Yeah. That's super important. And then here later on, and here's here's the problem. So if we if we don't look at it like love is deeper and underpins that, and God's removing an old covenant, if we try to blend the old and new covenants, there's a great danger that comes with that. I'm gonna mm-hmm. read you two verses. Sure. And then we're gonna kind of talk about that. It's a great danger. So James 2, verses 8 to 10. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you should love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressor, transgressors. 
For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now compare this verse to Galatians 5, verse 3 to 6. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait the hope for, the, for righteousness. For in Christ, Jesus, neither, circ, Jesus is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accounts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, so we have two things here. If you accept one part of the law, circumcision, dietary restrictions, right? Say Sabbath, you're obligated to keep all of it. Mm -hmm. And the other flip side, if you keep the whole law but break one part, you're guilty of breaking all of it. In the law... And you're just in the same situation that we were before Christ. Th we, we need Christ. That's exactly right. And here's, yeah. here's what the law says. If you break the Sabbath, you kill that person. <clears throat> if you're not killing somebody for breaking the Sabbath, you're breaking the law. Yeah. So, so it's kind of it, like... Yeah. You see what I'm saying? How crazy that gets? <laughs> like... So, and, and, I, and yeah, where it gets sticky is that then people are like, well, then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to read the New Testament. We're supposed to reflect on the work of Christ uh, and, and live that out in our everyday lives. I mean, the one thing that is similar, I mean, not the one thing, there's a few things similar between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but something that transfers over that I think we don't think about, which is a shame, is the concept that in the Old Covenant, the laws were given to Israel to distinguish them from the surrounding cultures. You are different. You do not live like the surrounding covenant. Well, guess what, guys? We don't have culturally specific laws in the New Covenant, but we absolutely do receive a command to not be like our pagan cultures that we live inside of, which is a constant human threat to us. We can become like the culture and in so doing lose our salty flavor that makes us different from the world. And I want to read to you Ephesians 4 verse 17 and on. And here's what it says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Right. So there is still sanctification that happens. There is still this concept of being a holy nation. We're not like one people. We're a bunch of different cultures now, but we are one people in Christ. Right. He is our righteousness for salvation. And now we are obligated to live for him, which looks different than living for ourselves in the cultures in which we find ourselves. That's right. And I, I think that, I know we're kind of going over time. We but, are. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fine. Yeah. But 
because this is a big topic because I know it's, it's, it's really difficult for some people. Um, when we think about this, and I know it's difficult for some people because we're dealing with the works of the law versus good works. And some people are like, well, what's the difference? Like, where did mm -hmm. they blend that line? Mm -hmm. The whole point of the New Testament is that it's the spirit, not just the law. Mm -hmm. Paul says, this, I think it's 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 3. He says, well, you know, you are our letters, our recommendation. The letters are is in your heart. The spirit is in your heart. It's about the spirit that's in you. And through the spirit, as, as it says in Hebrews and Jeremiah, the spirit will teach you all things. It's through the spirit, not just complying to the letter of the law because the letter kills. And I think that's so important because everything boils down to the spirit. And I'm going to read you from Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 19. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you who questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, who is Christ, whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Long story short, again, I keep saying that today, long story short, <laughs> short story long, I should switch it up, um, is that here you have the Ten Commandments are incomplete. There's something deeper and more fundamental. We shouldn't look at the Old, old, the old Covenant and be like, look how much better this was. Yeah. It, they, everyone in the New Covenant's like, no, look how terrible it was. Like, it, it, we couldn't even complete it. We couldn't even do it. No. Through Christ is the only way you can, it's through the Spirit. And that's what's being carried over. That's what's happening. So I think that this, this difficulty comes down to, um, uh, well, here's what I'm, I'm also not saying. Can these laws, can we, is there wisdom and look at the Old Testament, see what's applicable for societal laws? Yes, I think there's wisdom there. I think there's wisdom, all of scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, all these things. But it's not like our salvation is wrapped up in understanding or in doing the old or covenant. Or that there's going to be one-to-one. -one, or there's one-to-one -one, one uh, translations. Translate is not going it, to be. It, that's exactly right. So there's, you have to, and, and that's the difference between the legal structure today, since the 1500s and on, sure. our sense of legal thing has been codification, whereas law used to be wisdom. Yes, used to be, you look at the law and you say, oh, it says apply that, let's it apply with it with wisdom. You take that <laughs> and there's implications to that law, not just, I take those letters and that's all I have to do. Mm -hmm. That's like a lazy, slothful mind. Um, but apart from that, so there's just so much more there that we could talk about without going over time. Um, and Paul says pretty quickly, just to wrap kind of things up in Galatians, you know, if you do try to apply the Old Testament law to the new one, he goes, if I, if I build up what I tore down, I would truly be a, law, a lawless uh, lawbreaker. Yeah. You think about that. Oh, you're creating more laws. Creating more laws for salvation makes you a lawbreaker. Yep. Right? Because the whole point is the laws come from God. The laws in themselves are not actually, right? In and of themselves are nothing without God. Mm -hmm. The laws mean nothing. You need God for those laws to make any sense at all, to have any sort of morality whatsoever. Morality doesn't exist in and of itself. Right. I can't just walk around and just do good moral things. It always is. There's always a direction and a purpose and a heart towards it. That directionality is what makes something moral. It's from God outwards. If there's no God, it can't be moral. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I think that. I think that. 
I agree. Yeah. So then to kind of boil it back down and summarize everything that we've been saying, when it comes to the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament Law, Jesus Christ fulfilled it. He didn't destroy it. He fulfilled it. The Old Covenant has passed then. Jesus inaugurated a new covenant that we are under. Jesus Christ is our full righteousness. We have righteousness with God because of Christ's work here on earth, his death and his resurrection. We as new creations, as born again Christians, have an obligation to live like the new creation, to follow God and Christ in his morality. And we discover what that is through reading the New Testament and through reading the works of Christ and through prayer. So yeah, there we go. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed the program. Pop all your questions and comments below if you would like to see us discuss your question on the next show. Uh, I hope you have a good week of studying and we'll see you then. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.